Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your audio source for news in Hoosier Law. Brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of the Indiana Lawyer and your host. Wherever you're listening from today, thanks for joining us. Today's show will commence with some recent headlines before diving into a one-on-one interview with a leader from the Hoosier legal community. This week's guest is Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law Professor Gerard Magliocca, who discussed the recent U.S. Supreme Court opinion leak as well as his involvement during the recent Marjorie Taylor Greene hearing in Georgia. There's no time to waste, so let's wave the green flag. Today is May 18th, 2022, and these are your headlines. Let's start off with some breaking news we brought you last week. On May 12th, Crawford Circuit Court Judge Sabrina Bell was arrested on a charge of level 6 felony domestic battery in the presence of a child less than 16 years old. She was released to pretrial monitoring the same day and has been suspended from the bench. You may remember that back in April, Judge Bell abruptly ended her re-election campaign and stepped down from the bench. A senior judge, Susan Orth, is presiding over the Crawford Circuit Court in Bell's place. It wasn't clear back in April why Bell withdrew from public office, All we knew that was that a, quote, incident had occurred involving law enforcement. A probable cause affidavit filed before Bell's arrest fills in some of those blanks. The affidavit, filed by an officer with the Indiana State Police, alleges Bell struck her ex-husband in the neck and cheek area when he arrived at her home to pick up their three children for a scheduled visit. Two of the children, ages 12 and 8, witnessed the incident, according to the affidavit. Bell has pleaded not guilty. She has retained court attorney Amy Newland to represent her. On the same day that Bell was arrested, the Indiana Judicial Qualifications Commission opened a disciplinary case against her. The Indiana Supreme Court issued an order that same day suspending Bell with pay. Bell was previously suspended from the bench for 30 days without pay for her role in a 2019 incident that resulted in Clark County Judges Andrew Adams and Bradley Jacobs being shot. Check back with our website for periodic updates in this case. Staying on the topic of judges, we have an update for you on the search for a new judge in Indiana's largest trial court system. Last week, the Marion County Judicial Selection Committee named three finalists to fill an upcoming vacancy on the Marion Superior Court. Attorneys Mark Kamish and Linda Major and Magistrate Judge Jeffrey Marshall are all in the running to fill an open spot in Superior Court 31 after Judge Grant Hawkins retires at the end of September. The three finalists were selected from a pool of 23 applicants who were interviewed on May 9th and 10th. The Judicial Selection Committee, which is led by Indiana Supreme Court Justice Stephen David, is tasked by law with interviewing Marion Superior Court candidates and recommending three finalists to the governor. Once Governor Eric Holcomb receives the names of the three finalists for the Hawkins vacancy, he'll have 60 days to name the newest Marion Superior Court judge. In addition to Marion County, Superior Court judges are chosen through a merit-based selection process in Allen, Lake, and St. Joseph counties. Indiana's appellate judges are also chosen through merit selection. All other Hoosier judges are elected or appointed by the governor if a vacancy occurs midterm. If you practice in Marion County, check back with us in about 60 days to learn who the newest judge you'll be appearing in front of is. Next, let's move into some lawsuit news. First, Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancombe has the story of a bail-related lawsuit that will affect litigants in Marion and Lake Counties. Katie, what can you tell us? A national bail organization that took a hit from the Indiana legislature this spring has filed a federal lawsuit alleging that a new state law has infringed on its constitutional right to serve Hoosiers. 
The Bail Project, a nonprofit charitable bail group, filed a complaint in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana on May 4th with the help of the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana. The Office of the Indiana Attorney General is representing the Department of Insurance. The suit claims that House Enrolled Act 1300 violates the Bail Project's First Amendment rights and its rights under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The new law prevents any person charged with a violent crime from being bailed out by a charitable bail group, among other things. Anyone charged with a new felony who has a past conviction of a violent crime also cannot receive bail assistance from a charitable bail group under the new law. Proponents of the law say it aims to curb Indiana's increase in violent crime, particularly in Indianapolis. The bail project recently came under fire in Indiana after it bailed out three people who went on to commit additional violence. Opponents counter that the bill will target low-income Hoosiers who cannot afford bail as they remain in jail under the presumption of innocence. Since 2018, the Bail Project has offered free bail assistance in Indy to low-income individuals and supportive services upon release. Lake County also began receiving bail services in 2020. The Marion County Sheriff's Department declined to speak with Indiana lawyer about the lawsuit, or how the removal of bail services from violent criminals may or may not impact the local community. A representative from the Lake County Sheriff's Department did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The bail project was, you know, a godsend for some people. That's Ann Sutton, chief counsel for the Marion County Public Defender Agency. She says that the removal of bail services for certain offenders will make it harder for public defenders to do their jobs and get clients released. Sutton expressed concern that the new law targets only charitable organizations, saying that private bail groups will still be able to help individuals who are likely to reoffend. You could commit a very heinous crime, and if you're wealthy, you get to go home. <laughs> I mean, it's just arbitrary. So this really only targets um, our poor population, the indigent population. They're the ones that, for some reason, we feel the need to lock them up and they don't deserve release, which is absurd. Next, Indiana lawyer editor Olivia Covington has news about a lawsuit designed to protect defendants with mental illnesses. Olivia? Thanks, Jordan. On May 9th, the Indiana Protection and Advocacy Services Commission filed a complaint against the Indiana Family and Social Services Administration, alleging that defendants who are found incompetent to stand trial are not receiving the restoration services they are entitled to by law. Instead, the lawsuit says defendants who are found not competent for trial are left in county jails rather than being placed in a treatment facility. Under Indiana Code Section 35-36-3-1, a defendant who is found to lack the mental capacity to assist in his or her own defense is committed to the Division of Mental Health and Addiction while their trial is continued. DMHA must either provide competency restoration services or contract with an outside vendor to provide those services. Incompetent defendants who are charged with serious crimes are sent to the Logansport State Hospital, while other incompetent defendants may be sent to other mental health treatment institutions. But if an institution does not have space for a defendant, he or she must wait in county jail until a bed is available at a facility. According to the complaint, defendants wait an average of about 121 and a half days in jail between receiving a commitment order and being placed in a treatment facility. Three defendants have waited more than 200 days. And as of May 5th, the complaint says 18 defendants in the Marion County Jail were awaiting a placement in a competency restoration facility. All of this, the plaintiff says, violates defendants' due process rights. 
FSSA declined to comment on the complaint, but Ray Lay, a commissioner on the Indiana Protection and Advocacy Services Commission, says he has been through the competency restoration process. So he knows firsthand that, quote, simply sitting in jail is not treatment and allows mental health conditions to fester or worsen, end quote. The commission is represented by the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana and Indiana Disability Rights. The state defendants are represented by the Office of the Indiana Attorney General. The case has been assigned to Judge James Sweeney of the Indiana Southern District Court and referred to Magistrate Judge Tim Baker. Thanks, Katie and Olivia. We'll track both of these cases as they progress, so follow along for updates. Well, it's election season, which we all know comes with a barrage of campaign ads and high-dollar donations. But after the 2020 elections, this year's midterms also come with a fair share of skepticism about the security of voting systems across the country, including in Indiana. As our sister paper, the IBJ, reports, Indiana is taking steps to alleviate some of those concerns. According to the IBJ, Indiana Secretary of State Holly Sullivan has announced plans to conduct post-election audits in 10 Indiana counties after this year's general election, as well as four audits following the primary elections earlier this month. The audits come at no cost of the state and will use statistical evidence to determine the accuracy of election results, according to IBJ reporter Emily Ketterer. The audits will manually check a randomized sample of paper ballots against initial machine readings. Participating counties will select which races to audit. To be eligible to participate, a county must either use paper ballots or provide a paper trail for at least 10% of voting machines. Additionally, as Indiana lawyer senior reporter Marilyn Odendahl previously reported, the Indiana General Assembly passed legislation this year requiring all electronic voting machines in the state to also have a paper ballot trail, although that change won't take effect until 2024. This election season is already shaping up to be a hot one, so we'll keep a close eye on the races you care about. Check back with us between now and November for the news you need to know before you vote. To wrap up this week's headlines, let's kick it back to Katie who has a preview of a story she's working on about an issue that has law enforcement on edge. This week, I'll be taking a look at a growing trend in the firearm arena known as ghost guns and whether they are making a mark on Indiana crime. Ghost guns are privately made, untraceable firearms that don't have a serial number and can be assembled from a buy-build shoot kit or can be 3D printed. As of now, anyone can purchase the kits without a background check. The Department of Justice has submitted a new rule to the Federal Register that would bring the regulation of ghost guns into alignment with traditional guns, requiring kits to be produced by licensed manufacturers and requiring purchasers to undergo a background check, among other things. The weapons are increasingly cropping up in violent crimes nationwide, according to the DOJ. The department revealed that nearly 24,000 ghost guns were recovered by law enforcement at crime scenes and reported to the government from 2016 to 2020. Meanwhile, firearm homicide rates in America grew by 35% from 2019 to 2020, the highest rate in more than 25 years, according to new data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Homicide rates increased in both large and small metro areas, as well as non-metro and rural areas. Counties with the highest poverty level had firearm homicide rates four and a half times as high as counties with the lowest poverty level. Some Hoosier cities saw a similar increase, including Indianapolis. 2021 was a record year for Indy with 271 homicides, according to the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department. More than 760 people were shot in 2021, a 6.72% increase over 2020. 
Could ghost guns be contributing to the growing rates of violent crime persisting across the Hoosier State? Stay tuned to see what officials and experts have to say on the matter. Back to you, Jordan. All right, that's it for this week's headlines. Visit TheIndianaLawyer.com for more on any of these stories or for updates on other happenings in the Indiana legal community. Stick around after the sponsor break for my conversation with an IU McKinney law professor with insight into some major issues happening in Washington, D.C., including the leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's exciting interview, we have Gerard Magliaca. The Samuel R. Rosen Professor at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law with us via Zoom. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. As some background, um, you have authored five books and more than two dozen articles on constitutional law and intellectual property. Uh, your most recent book, Washington's Heir, The Life of Justice Bushrod Washington, was published earlier this year. Um, for today's discussion, though, uh, we want to touch on a couple of different topics. Uh, first being the recent SCOTUS draft leak, and second, your involvement um, during the Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, ALJ hearing from uh, last month regarding her candidacy for office. Uh, so to begin, um, looking at the SCOTUS leak, um, what was your initial reaction to the draft opinion uh, authored by Justice Alito uh, that would overturn, essentially overturn Roe v. Wade? The first thing to say about it is that it's just a draft. And anybody who's written anything knows that their first draft often is rather different from their final draft if you assume that that's going to be the majority opinion at all. So, I mean, I think it's, in, it's interesting to look at how someone starts out, right? But it's hard to say that everything or even substantial parts of it will still be in there when the final draft is published, assuming Justice Alito is the author of the final opinion, because he's thinking about it himself. His law clerks are looking at it. The other justices are looking at it. There are dissenting opinions that will have to be responded to by the majority opinion, right? So, so I mean, I think people in some sense are making too much of it because they're treating it as if it's a final draft when it isn't. So that's the first thing to say. Sure. The second thing to say is this is one of those special cases where you would expect almost all the justices to write separately, right? Either concurring or dissenting. And it could well be that one of the concurring opinions, assuming that the majority overrules Roe versus Wade, one of the concurring opinions may end up being more important in terms of explaining why in a way that's clearer, easier to understand, more convincing than the majority opinion. I mean, normally we think that whatever the majority opinion is in a case, that's the controlling opinion. And But when you get these kind of very high profile Supreme Court cases, that's sometimes not true. So we'll see, because see, for example, if Justice Barrett 
writes a concurring opinion in a decision that overrules Roe versus Wade, you would think that people would pay a special attention to what she has to say because she's a woman, you know, and that that makes her perspective different in some sense from the others in the majority who are all going to be men. Okay, now that doesn't mean what she has to say about it is going to end up being any more convincing to anybody, but it seems to me people might look to that a little more because they'll think, okay, well, what's, what's her explanation, assuming she offers a separate explanation? I mean, she might not, but. So I think it, there's a long way to go to think, what's a final draft gonna look like? And then, yeah, but is that the opinion that people are gonna pay the most attention to? Mm-hmm. So we'll see. What are some of the constitutional arguments um, in the draft that you did find notable? It's really very unsurprising. That is, people have been thinking about abortion cases and arguing them back and forth for years upon years, right? So it's not like there's anything new to say about it, really. Uh, Or at least it's very hard to imagine. I mean, we'll see when all the other opinions are in, but it's, it's, it's all been sort of gone over a million times. I suppose, and again, this is kind of with the thought that it's only a first draft and, you know, you could imagine this is the kind of feedback someone might be given on their draft that they then go back and work on, which is it, it didn't strike me that the opinion was really trying to convince somebody who was not already convinced. You know, in other words, it, it didn't, some opinions are, try, are making a greater effort to persuade people on the fence, or people on the other side of the issue. Uh, and, and there's one thing that, that occurred to me, which is that when the court wrote Brown versus Board of Education, they did so with the knowledge that, okay, this is going to be a very important case, and that people are going to read the opinion in the newspapers and want to understand it. And so it was written in a way that was meant to be accessible to non-lawyers, right? It was relatively short. It didn't have a lot of citation or complicated legalisms in it. And it was written by Earl Warren, who was a politician before he became a judge. And so had a pretty good understanding of how you talk about complicated issues to voters in a way that's going to be convincing and understandable. Okay, Justice Alito's draft opinion is not doing any of that. It's very long. It's full of citations and legalisms and so on. Um, that's a problem in if you think that the opinion is supposed to be trying to convince non-lawyers or folks who are just going to read it. Right, but I don't think that's what he has in mind. Uh, Now, should he have that in mind? I think that's a valid question. Um, So we'll see what the final approach looks like. That's why one of these separate opinions, as I said earlier, might end up becoming more important because it'll almost certainly be shorter and might be able to sort of explain it in a way that's directed at a different audience than Justice Alito's draft opinion. You know, if one of the justices does flip their vote um, following this leak, um, you know, we know that this has been coming for a while. Do you think 
I guess, what is what does that do to the institution itself of the Supreme Court? And how do you see um, it impacting um, the court moving forward, Justice League itself? The first thing to say is that Supreme Court justices have been leaking for years and years and years. That's not new. Uh, what is new is the leak of an actual draft opinion. That is, the prior leaks tended to be sort of comments about other members of the court or issues, which then led to bad feelings and sort of uh, con uh, difficulties among the justices. You know, in more modern times, there's been this idea that the justices are supposed to be all getting along all the time. And of course, historically, that's not how they often relate to each other. I mean, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's one of the most famous Supreme Court justices, right, once said that the Supreme Court is like nine scorpions in a bottle. Okay, now that, that didn't mean they were all chummy and having uh, collegial disagreements, right? Sometimes the disagreements were very bitter and very personal and they didn't like each other. So that happens sometimes, uh, life moves on. I don't know that it would really change the institution. I, I guess one thing you might say is if they actually identify who the leak came from, that could raise some questions because, okay, well, what would you do then? to that person or, well, what might that reveal about different motivations and so on? But it seems to me it's very unlikely either that they will find who it was or if they do find out who it was, they might not want anybody to know. Mm -hmm. um, and so it'll kind of be hushed up. Uh, so I, I don't think it will have much of a, again, Ro Dobbs uh, is an unusual case it doesn't, what things that happen as a result of it don't necessarily spill over into other cases. I just think it has to be treated as a kind of a, a, a very unusual event in all respects. Well, let's move on to the topic of uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. You recently provided expert testimony uh, during an ALJ hearing in Georgia concerning her qualifications to run for office uh, due to her involvement with the uh, January 6th 2021 riot at the Capitol. Ultimately, it was decided she can run for office, but uh, I believe an appeal is coming if it isn't already in the works. Um, you also were involved uh, with voters in North Carolina regarding uh, Representative uh, Cawthorn on the same issue. Um, so to kind of begin with, uh, these are a pair of unique cases to go before uh, AL, ALJ judges. Have we ever had lawsuits like this happen before? And should constitutional issues like the 14th Amendment be decided by uh, ALJs? So the only way in which something like this has happened before would involve ballot challenges to candidates where, let's say, they did not get enough signatures to get on the ballot or they didn't get the signatures from the right place or in the right way, that kind of thing then would could go before an ALJ. And someone could be excluded okay but obviously that's a pretty significant distance from a federal constitutional question regarding like an attack on the united states capitol right so in that sense it, it'd be more accurate to say it's unprecedented for these kinds of challenges to come before state alj's um 
Second, we would be better off if Congress had at some point last year enacted a statute that would provide for a national process by which you could assess claims that someone is ineligible to serve in office under section three of the 14th amendment. Um, the, because then you could have it all go through the federal courts. You could even have expedited review to the Supreme Court. You could channel the cases into one particular court, maybe in the District of Columbia, let's say, and you could have a clear set of standards for how you're gonna evaluate the claim. What's the burden of proof? Who has the burden of proof? All that sort of stuff. Okay, but of course Congress didn't do anything. Um, and so what you're left with is a state-by-state -state determination. Now, there are a couple of problems with that. One is different standards in each state, different process in each state. Uh, the second is you could say it's a little odd to think that state courts or state ALJs are the ones who have to decide was an attack on the national capital a violation of the federal constitution. And that seems sort of backwards, um, but that's what we're left with. And of course, um, it's too late now probably for Congress to really step in and do anything, even if they were inclined to do that. So that's what we've, that's the process we've got to work with for this election cycle and the next election cycle. What are some arguments that you found uh, compelling? Well, with respect to Representative Taylor Greene or just in general? Just, just in general. Well, I think, look, it's not too difficult to say that what happened at the Capitol last January is an insurrection or was an insurrection under the meaning of the Constitution. Uh, I say that because of comparisons to other insurrections that have been designated that way in American history that preceded the Civil War and to some degree the legal authorities, you know, such as they are, that defined that term, uh, as well as the kind of seriousness of what occurred at the Capitol in disrupting a constitutionally required function the certification of the electoral votes to enable a new president to take office. Okay, now, the harder question is, okay, but with respect to any given individual who is challenged, you know, well, what did they do? Either before January 6th or on January 6th, that would lead you to the conclusion that they engaged in insurrection, which is the constitutional standard, and are thereby disqualified. Um, in some instances, there aren't enough facts or the facts are unclear and you just have to look at that on a case by case basis. And that was what the hearing in the uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene proceeding was doing. It was an evidentiary hearing to ascertain in part, you know, what, what she did or what she was alleged to have done. Okay, the one thing we know for certain though, is that of all of the elected officials who were in any way involved or affiliated with or around January 6, 2021, the strongest evidence is against Donald Trump because he was president and because he was, you know, most directly concerned in the outcome of the certification, mm -hmm. as well as all the things he said and did and so on. So, 
you know, whatever you think about the eligibility of any other person, you know, and some, some are going to be found to be eligible, some not, and so on. The, the, the strongest case is going to be probably against Donald Trump if he runs again for president, right? So that's where we're going to be a year from now litigating that question. And hopefully the cases from this year will provide just some, some framework, some resources that will be helpful to people when they have to deal with that bigger question next year. What are some things that maybe we could see um, on appeal? Well, okay, so you know, sometimes the appeal, of course, is just about whatever state election law provides, right? And I'm not a an expert on the election law of every state, so uh, that that's a that that's a little bit uh, beyond what I can <laughs> to talk about. But look, um, there are different arguments that these challenged officials are making about why they should not be subject to disqualification apart from whether they were involved in the insurrection or not, right? So for example, one argument that some of the members of Congress are making who are being challenged is to say, look, um, only Congress can decide, or the House of Congress that I belong to can decide if I'm disqualified or not. A state cannot do that. So that's a, that's a kind of jurisdictional or um, type of argument. Okay, another version of that is to say something like, well, uh, maybe state law doesn't authorize disqualification because it doesn't say anything about section three of the 14th amendment, right? So you just had an opinion or more, well, more like an order out of the Arizona Supreme Court where they said, look, our state election law, at least for candidates, doesn't really extend to that kind of challenge. So it, it can't be brought. Uh, you have to be an office holder to be challenged in that way, maybe. Um, so there are other substantive arguments. Now, some of them are, are stronger, some of them are weaker. And you know, if Donald Trump is challenged, he will, may, he will have a couple of different arguments because he was president then. And so we'll try to argue that Section three doesn't apply to either the presidency or didn't doesn't didn't apply to him because he was president, something like that. Um, so there'll be quite a bit to sort out, but it'll all end up in the Supreme Court eventually, right? Yeah. So um, uh, it, it's just a matter of time, and um, maybe we'll get to see the draft opinion of that case too. <laughs> Have you ever uh, have you ever provided uh, provided expert testimony to anything like this before on these kind of constitutions? No, I had never I had never been an expert in any proceeding before. How does that kind of uh, all kind of come together? How does that happen? Well, I was asked to do it, and I felt like I should because this is by an accident something that I've become an expert in. So the the story is that in the fall of 2020, I decided to write an article on section three of the 14th amendment because no one had written about it before. And I thought I was just writing an interesting historical paper. 
never would have thought it would have had any relevance to anything now. And then a couple of weeks after I shared the draft with people, meaning I put it up you know, publicly so that people could download it and look at it, then January 6th happened. And it suddenly became a contemporary issue. And I just felt like I should be available as an expert because there, I have written one of the very few articles. I mean, there's one other now that's been published, and I'm sure there'll be more published, you know, in the next year or two, right? But so I feel like it's more a question of trying to help people understand a provision of the Constitution that they basically never heard of until very recently. You know, you don't need an expert to come in and testify about Roe v. Wade. You know, everybody knows what Roe v. Wade is, right? But this is different because nobody really knew anything about what this was, why was it there, how was it applied back 150 years ago. So that's kind of the role that I'm trying to do uh, or serve is, uh, you know, to educate people. And uh, one last question. Just tell, tell me a little bit about your book. I know it just came out uh, not too long ago. Uh, just, uh, I know that it talks about uh, George Washington's nephew, but I'm gonna let you take it from there. What, what should people expect when they purchase and, and read this? So this is a biography of Bushrod Washington, who was George Washington's nephew and inherited Mount Vernon after Martha Washington died and lived there for many years. And he was a Supreme Court justice for 30 years, working very closely with John Marshall during the period, almost the entire period that Marshall was the chief justice. So there's kind of, it's fun if you like George Washington stuff, there's a lot of George Washington in there because of their family relationship. If you're interested in the Supreme Court, there's a lot in there because of his time on the court. There's also a good deal there about slavery because he was a slave owner and that issue, which kind of carried over from George Washington's time at Mount Vernon continued during the time that Bushrod Washington was in charge of Mount Vernon. I, would also, I also was saying to someone recently that of, of all the books I've written, this is the only one that's funny because there are some funny stories in it relating to George Washington, John Marshall, you know, anecdotes, because um, there were a lot of lively kinds of letters written among all of these people and more, a lot of them survived. And so I was able to use those. And, you know, my other books are more conventional legal books, right? And this has a good deal of that too, but there's a couple of really great laugh out loud stories in this book. So this is probably the closest I'll come to ever writing uh, something something funny. That'll wrap up this week's episode. Thanks again to IU McKinney Professor Jordan Maglioka for joining us on this week's podcast. As always, you can catch up on previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast on theindianalawyer.com or via your favorite streaming service.